Welcome to our third special episode of Rising Tide, the Ocean podcast, where we rebroadcast one of our Writers for the Sea seminars. Today's panel was recorded live in late July with best-selling novelist Lisa C., who wrote The Island of Sea Women, and Jim Toomey, the creator of the Sherman's Lagoon comic strip. So welcome to Writers for the Sea. It's a project of Blue Frontier. You can find out more about Writers for the Sea at bluefront.org or go to our Facebook page and join a thousand authors and fans of literary, salty writings. Our last live event was uh, pre-pandemic at the Society of Environmental Journalists in Boulder, Colorado back in 2019. Um, this is our third live on Zoom event since then. It's, uh, today's theme is fiction for the sea. Our guests include the New York Times bestselling author, Lisa C., that's S-E-E, and uh, her most recent book now in paperback is Island of the Sea Women. Um, and we're also joined by uh, Jim Toomey, syndicated uh, cartoonist, uh, creator of Sherman's Lagoon that's in, been in 250 newspapers, 30 countries, and of course, Every time I got to thank Jim for illustrating our book, 50 Ways to Save the Ocean. Of course, fiction for the oceans, wide ranging, would include books like The Odyssey, Moby Dick, The Little Mermaid. The range of uh, ocean fictions can go from uh, a story of uh, a fraught friendship between two women, multi-generational trauma and mass killings, to an imaginary lagoon full of talking fish. And that's what we have today with uh, these two authors. Let's start with you, Lisa. I mean, did you always want to be a writer, start out as a little girl writing stories? Well, actually, no. My mother was a writer and my mother's father was a writer. And I think I just really didn't want to do that, you know, like we all are sometimes a bit rebellious about it. Um, but actually, I did have a lifelong apprenticeship. I, I sometimes joke around, you know, it's a good thing they weren't plumbers, but why couldn't they have been brain surgeons? So, and a lot of your novels and also your, your nonfiction family history on Gold Mountain are all set around China. Island of the Sea Women is, um, you know, it's set on Jeju Island in Korea with the uh, Henyos. And uh, I'm, I'm told it started in your doctor's office. Yes, I was sitting in the doctor's office, flipping through a magazine, waiting to be called in. We've all done that. And I came across one small article, one small photo about the divers. I ripped that right out of the magazine and brought it home. And I knew even then that I would write about them, but I was working on something else. I was working on something else. So it truly, truly was on the back burner. But I, and I have a lot of ideas back there on the back burner. And when I have free time, instead of, oh, I don't know, you know, knitting or gardening or going to the movies, I love to do research. That's the big treat of my life. And I live very close to UCLA. I love to just, I mean, before the pandemic, I love to go over there and just spend an afternoon in one of the seven research libraries there. So I, you know, was slowly collecting material, but it wasn't until I guess it's about eight years ago now when UNESCO gave the divers the designation of an intangible world heritage tradition. And part of the reason UNESCO did that was that they were anticipating that within 15 years, so actually um, about five years ago, so 10 years from now, that this culture would disappear from the earth. And by that time, I knew that a lot of these divers were in their 70s, 80s, early 90s. 
And here's the thing, you know, if you want to interview people in their late 80s, early 90s, you take a big risk waiting 5, 10, 15 years to go interview them. So it became very important to do it now. And I'm so glad that I did, because if I'd waited till last year, obviously would not have been able to go. I don't think this year it's even possible. And I frankly am a little dubious about next year for that kind of travel. Right. And as a nonfiction writer, I, I realized in reading your book, it's incredible, but I also realized you got to do as much research oh, as absolutely. any nonfiction. Um, when did you first go to the island and, and just talk about the incredible amounts of, of Right. So I guess it has to be about four and a half years ago now. And, um, you know, it was just incredible. I met, interviewed people from the Oceanographic Institute, people at the Henyo Museum, uh, different researchers. Uh, I interviewed a woman who had been collecting Henyo diving songs for the last 40 years. So trying to find people like that. But the main people that I was there to interview were the divers themselves. And they were just fantastic. Um, you know, they're quite, they really have some, you know, big personalities. So they, they have, they're quite loud because their ears have been damaged by being under the sea at such depths for so long. Um, they really are confronting life and death every single day. And so I think partly because of that, they have this, I guess you'd call it black humor. You know, they have really great senses of humor. They love to joke. They love to tease. They love especially to tease men. And so um, I, there were really three categories of women or ways that I interviewed them. Sometimes it was in their homes. This was, these were very in-depth interviews, one-on-one -on -one that would last two to eight hours. Then I would go uh, to where women were going into the sea or coming out of the sea at the end of the day of work. And those were very much catch as catch can, you know, just walking up to total strangers and think, oh, can I ask you some questions? So those interviews were by their nature quite short, but I can get a lot from those short interviews. You know, sometimes it's just a fabulous line. Sometimes it's a way to build consensus. And then the third group were women who are retired or semi-retired, maybe getting over an injury, who sit on the shore and collect and sort the algae and seaweed that's washed ashore overnight. And once again, those, those interviews just by their nature were very short. Um, and, you know, sometimes I'd walk up to someone and say, oh, can I interview you? And they'd be like, and again, loud, you know, no, go away, we're busy. And sometimes they'd say, sure, sit down. And five minutes later say, okay, now you can go away, I'm busy. But again, those short interviews are just a terrific way to get, um, you know, a great line, to build consensus, to take a story. There was one I heard on the first day that I just couldn't believe. And then every time I would interview someone, I'd, I'd sort of ask, oh, what do you think about this? And over and over again, people say, oh, yeah, that's, that's right. But I do remember this one woman uh, who when I approached her on the beach, she shouted out, I was the best Tenyo. Now they all say that, you know, they love to brag. I was the best. No, 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 I was the best. But this woman actually may have been the best because in the Henyo Museum, they had big photographs of her in the galleries. They had a documentary about her that ran on a continuous loop. Anyway, there was one point when she leaned forward to me and she said, you know, 
I was so good under the sea, I could cook a meal under there. And I just thought, I write that down <laughs> because it was such a fabulous line, first of all. I could never make it up. But also it just tells you so much about how they looked at the sea and the pride that she and other women would take in the work that they did. So did any of them invite you to free dive with them or did you try free diving? No, I mean, I can swim and I did practice in the pool trying to get this straight head down position. I could never really do it. You know, these are people who have spent their lives um, free diving, who are trained to do it. This is how they make their living. Um, you know, I'm not a professional diver and I just didn't think it was appropriate for me. to do. So Jim, as a child, did you imagine to grow up and be a cartoonist? Well, you don't really grow up and be a cartoonist. Those two things sort of conflict, but um, you, uh, I guess, you know, I, my story is a little bit like Lisa's, except that I came, came from a family of engineers and I wanted to rebel against the engineering thing. So I sort of became a writer because of that. Um, sometimes I wonder if I should have just been an engineer to begin with. I, I didn't come to writing. Um, I'm not a natural writer. It's really like pulling teeth for me, the writing part of the cartoon. There's the writing and the drawing. The drawing for me is easy, um, but the writing is tough. So, um no, I never imagined myself a cartoonist. I kind of fell into it after getting bored with a lot of more conventional jobs. And I, I had nothing to turn to except turning pro with my, my hobby. Briefly, tell us your career path since uh, unfortunately everybody thinks they have a novel in them and most of them, it will stay in them. Um, but getting to be a syndicated cartoonist, people don't think about how you go about that. Right. Well, uh, 20 years ago, it was a coveted job and it was a very difficult um, thing to pull off. Um, now, I'm not sure I would uh, encourage anybody to try because the, the industry is pretty much dead or almost dead. Um, uh, but uh, back in the day, what you really needed to do to become a syndicated cartoonist was, I think there's a... Um, there's one piece of advice I always give cartoonists, which is, um, and this is true for writers and, and any, any, anyone in the arts is, uh, you know, if you're not getting enough rejections, you're not trying hard enough and you're not um, casting a wide enough net and you're not taking enough chances. So rejection is definitely a part of a cartoonist's life like it is part of a writer's life or a, a singer's life or whatever. Um, I think um, with, with syndication, uh, it's, it's kind of a weird industry. There's only, there's only about four syndicates that distribute to all the newspapers in the nation. And these syndicates are looking for specific things. And, and if they already have a cartoon about, you know, a, a little boy and a toy tiger, they're not going to, they're not going to take your cartoon, even despite the fact that it's an excellent cartoon or whatever. So they're, they're looking for variety in their portfolio. And that's probably true with publishers as well. So you could have the greatest book in the world about the ocean, about sharks. And if your publisher or your syndicate or your distributor or whatever already has um, a lot of shark books, uh, it could be the greatest book in the world, but they're not going to take it. So um, the, the best artists, the best authors in the world get rejected all the time, not necessarily because of the quality of their work, but because the particular business associated with 
their art does not see a fit for that product. If you want to talk about it in those business terms. Well, when I first met you in 2000, you and your wife, Valerie, um, she was wearing a string of pearls. And I immediately recognized Sherman, the shark's wife, Megan, wears a string of pearls. Um, so <laughs> how did you become sharks and, uh, and how did the other sea creatures evolve? What, uh, what got you to take a sort of left wing at the uh, shoreline? Well, I, it, most of my writing is autobiographical. When you, when you have to make it up every day and you have a deadline every week, you, you really, um, you know, you, uh, you can't just pull material out of thin air. It's really life experience that, um, that I pump into the strip every day. And sometimes it's marriage gags, sometimes it's family gags. So um, I put a lot of sort of analogs in the comic strip that fit my life. So Sherman, Sherman is a, is a facet of my personality. You know, he's, he's, he's the guy who's going to say the dumb thing at the dinner party and bring the whole thing to a screeching halt sometimes. And I've, I've done that a couple of times. Um, and my wife, you know, she's, I kind of pour her personality into Megan a little bit. And so the, the, the marriage conflict dynamic or whatever, the love story is, uh, is kind of reflected in that. Um, and Sherman and Megan had kids the exact same time that we had our first child. So there's a lot of autobiographical material and, you know, humor is really all about, in my opinion, it's all about recognizing yourself in the humor, you know, and that, I think that's what, I think laughter is an act of recognition. You see somebody, you know, being a, a comedian trying to be funny or being funny. And it's, it's really, I think, the reason we laugh at it, the reason we're amused by it is because we see our own life in it. Um, so I try to, you know, stick to real life, um, uh, kind of a real life foundation to most of my, most of my comic strips, most of my gags. And that, I think that hits home with a lot of readers. I remember when uh, I opened your comic strip one time and saw Megan announcing she was going to have a pup calling you up to congratulate you. And, uh, and indeed, you were uh, having your own pups. Uh, right. <laughs> exactly. And, and it's all sort of, I guess, to a degree, autobiographical. Lisa, you, uh, you said you didn't want to initially, you were rebelling against being writers like your parents. And yet a lot of your novels are about um, China and heritage and um, women that uh, that come out of your own life experience. Yeah, I, well, actually, I wouldn't say that my books are autobiographical at all. Uh, my mom was a writer. All of her novels were extremely autobiographical. You know, the people would read them and say, "Oh, are you this to me?" You no, know, "Oh, are you this character?" And um, so I think I, partly because of that, I've really tried to stay away from that. That said, I, there's a lot of my emotional life that sneaks in. I had a, there was a point a few years ago when one of my publishers bought some books that were out of print. And they came one day, you know, in the mail with these new jackets. And I don't go back and read my work because I wrote it. I don't go back and read it, but you know, they came, they had these new jackets I was flipping through. I really didn't remember much about the characters. I didn't remember much about the plot. You know, every once in a while, I think, oh, this is pretty good, you know, but, but I really didn't remember that much about them. However, no matter what page I turned to, I remembered exactly what was going on in my life at that time. 
you know, oh, my son had gotten in trouble in school. Oh, you know, my husband and I had had a disagreement about something. And my emotional life completely infiltrates um, day to day into the writing in ways that I, I'm really even now not completely aware of. So in uh, Island of the Sea Women, I mean, the central characters, these two women who have this, you know, incredible bond um, that shatters in the course of, you know, of, of the incredible violence they confront and, and, and sort of this, this never quite come to reconciliation until generations passed. Is, um, who were those well, characters? Just say, I struggle with forgiveness. <laughs> just personally, I struggle with forgiveness. And, you know, if there are people out there who've read others of my books, you know that I've kind of tiptoed around forgiveness in different books. In Snowflower and the Secret Fan, Two Best Friends, A Bad Thing Happens, you know, they split apart. Spoiler alert, Snowflower dies. So the end of the book is really more about atonement. In Shanghai Girls, Two Sisters, A Bad Thing Happens, they split apart. That book actually required that I write a sequel and the two sisters, Pearl and May, do find forgiveness, but they are on separate continents. They have no way to communicate. They only see each other on the last page. I mean, I could go through book by book. And so this time I knew going in that no matter what, I wanted to just look at forgiveness straight on. And that this was going to be the major sort of emotional theme of the book. And when I was thinking about, you know, I knew that I wanted to write about the Henyo and about Jeju Island. And so I looked at this sort of larger history of Jeju. I went back about a thousand years to when it was its own independent kingdom, um, you know, period of the Korean kings, Manchus take over, the, the um, uh, Mongols take over. So, you know, it was and still is kind of a stepping stone out there in the Pacific that different people have wanted it at different times. Anyway, all of a sudden I get to the 20th century and all this stuff happens. Uh, the Korean, the uh, Japanese colonial period, Sino-Japanese War, World War II, the 4-3 incident and the Korean War. So today, I mean, in this was a place where there was um, this eight-year massacre during the 4-3 incident when between 30 and 80,000 people were killed and 85% of the villages were burned and destroyed. And then that eight years of violence was followed by 50 years of government enforced secrecy. So you couldn't talk about it. You couldn't write about it. If you did, you could be sent to prison, tortured, killed, and so could everyone else in your family. Anyway, Today, this island is recognized internationally as the island of peace. It's ranked with Rwanda and South Africa as international models for forgiveness. So I knew that I, if I set the novel in this time period, I could really you know, look at forgiveness. And we know how forgiveness works in so many levels. It's one-on-one, -on -one, it's with your neighbor, it's sometimes within families, it's societies and cultures, it's countries. And I thought by setting it in this time period, I could really kind of look at all these different levels of forgiveness. Right. And sometimes reconciliation is not about individual forgiveness. Right. It's about some form of justice. And I think what's... Yeah. And, and, you know, for me to sort of do more scholarly research on forgiveness, 
what all the scientific studies show, but also some more like religious and philosophical ideas about forgiveness. One of the, the um, lines that I was very happy that I found is attributed to Buddha, to understand everything is to forgive. And I don't know how true that is. I think it's true up to a point, but it was, it was a line that I ended up using. And in, at some level, it also reflects island life, which is, you know, the scale of the massacre is amplified by the fact that it's on an island and, and kind of island life, like the life of mariners, fishermen, um, you know, commercial mariners, uh, sailors in the Navy. I mean, it's, it's quite separate. There are 8 billion people on the planet, but on any given day, there are only about 50 million on the sea. And there aren't that many um, small islands in the world or large islands. Right. And this particular island, you know, is pretty isolated. The seas are very rough around it. You know, it's about 100 miles from Japan, about 100 miles from Korea, and about 100 miles from China. So, you know, three straits. And then on the other side, on the western side, there are about a thousand miles of open sea. And so it's very windy, the seas are very rough. And um, so historically, the people on that island had been quite isolated from, from not only the other countries around them, but from the rest of the world. And, and Jim, you're, you know, along with being very funny, you, you also have uh, both in your cartoons and uh, in your animations, you, you've addressed some of the serious issues that are encompassing. I mean, island life, ocean life is changing rapidly. I mean, we're in a crisis moment, uh, you know, between industrial overfishing and, and uh, pollution and loss of habitat, climate change. I mean, people's lives are changing. You, you've tried to address it with humor, but you've, you've also... Um, done a number of, of works uh, for the UNEP, the UN Environmental Program, and others to try and talk about this with humor but seriousness. Yeah, um, you know, cartoons, they sort of let you get away with a lot um, because I, I think when, when people, cartoons and animations, so static cartoons, comic strips, and things like that, um, as soon as somebody sees a cartoon, they get a little bit disarmed. You know, they're, they're expecting light, fluffy material that makes them laugh. And I, I try to, I try to provide a laugh in, in my cartoons, even the ones where I'm trying to deliver some kind something more than just a, a chuckle. Um, but, and, and with the UN animations and the other animations I've done for other, um, for other folks, um, it is, it's an interesting medium for conveying a lot of, a lot of information, sometimes serious information um, and you can you can really kind of catch people by surprise with with the animation. Um, you know, you I I did a an animation on plastic pollution, and um, you know some of the some of the images you can you can convey like I covered the whole planet with little plastic bottles, and it's it was, um, and then I you know kind of made the bottles break up the way that real bottles do break up when they get into the environment, and I just kind of ended up with the planet covered with just these tiny little plastic particles. Um, and so those images and the, and the, 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 the animation behind it really can convey thoughts very, very economically and, um, um, you know, clearly um, a lot more than, 
you know, try that with live action or, or try to explain that in an article. Um, so there is sort of a, a kind of a direct connection to the brain through visual um, that, uh, that animation takes advantage of. With the comic strip, I kind of describe it more as a sort of a Trojan horse, you know, where, uh, yeah, it's disguised as a comic strip. So you let it in the door and then all kinds of other stuff jump out of it when, when you do let it in the door. Um, uh, you know, I've done a series, I did a series on shark finning. I've done a lot of plastic pollution. Um, I've done um, bottom fishing and, and just all kinds of things. And again, I try to stay true to my my contract with my audience, which is to provide a little bit of a laugh or at least a thought provoking um, uh, little story. Well, um, I, I have one of your strips in my office, which is the um, intellectual fish with glasses. I'm sorry, I forget his name. Ernest, yeah. Ernest is asking Sherman, he says, you know, I've got a class project. What, what can you use shark skin for? And Sherman's like, well, you can use it for shoes. You know, it makes a good sandpaper and it looks down. You could wrap a shark in it. Right. You can cover a shark in it. Right. That's sort of the, <laughs> I'm laughing at my own jokes. It's bad. But, um, well, you've been uh, isolated yeah, exactly. for a long time. But, and those are the, those are really the most effective, obviously, if you can just make somebody laugh, especially if you can make a laugh, um, conveying an idea that they may or may not agree with. They may not agree with. Um, I got a lot of flack for the shark finning cartoons because I think a lot of my audience didn't expect, you know, topical or political. I don't really consider it political, but um, so I, I did get a lot of negative feedback for some of that. But uh, again, I tried to keep it light and funny. And um, I think it was it was pretty effective. Well, I think if, if you've made a career with cartoon sharks, you have an obligation to make sure that actual sharks exist in the ocean after. Right. Yeah, years. exactly. And, and in terms of the, and, and we haven't had a lot of laughs the last year and a half. I mean, you know, between the shift out of celebrity fascism and a global pandemic. <laughs> um, I know for a lot of writers, it's, um, it's been hard. Uh, Lisa, you were saying that um, in terms of the pandemic and the isolation that, that one of your major projects was sort of put on hold. Yeah, like I said earlier, I do think about books for a long time before I write them. And so I thought I knew what the next book was going to be. I'd been collecting material for about four years, but it was going to require a trip deep, deep, deep into a very remote part of China. And it, you know, no way I could do that last year. I, I just really am not sure when a trip like that would is, uh, you know, going to happen. Um, anyway, I just was like, now what? <laughs> oh my God, now what? Because I, I, like I said, I do think about ideas for a long time. Anyway, this fall, I was walking by this bookcase. I walked by here many times every day. And one of the spines kind of jumped out at me. I don't know why, it was gray with darker gray lettering. So nothing to jump, but I pulled the book down. Um, reproducing women, childbirth, uh, Pregnancy and childbirth in the Ming Dynasty. And um, I thought, well, you know, I've had this book on my shelf for 20 years. Oh, me too. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Maybe now is the time to read it. I got to page 19, and there was a mention of a woman doctor in the Ming Dynasty. That's not so extraordinary, but enough, you know, extraordinary enough 
to send me to sort of look her up on the internet. And it turned out that um, she was born in 1460. In 1510, when she was when she turned 50, she uh, wrote and published a book of her cases. So uh, 1510. So I you know, I type it in. It's available in English. It's still in print. There aren't very many books in the world that are still in print 500 and now 11 years later. So I had a copy of that book within 24 hours. And now as of a couple of days ago, I'm on about page 275 writing about her. And she really was extraordinary um, out of the 12,000 books, medical books uh, that, you know, historic medical books in China, only three were written by women and hers was the first one. And again, still in print, which is, no, Jim, I don't know how you feel about it, but, but you know, just to have anything in print even 20 years later or 50 years later is, is pretty remarkable. So to have it, you know, so many centuries later. And hopefully your novels will be available for frontal brain lobe downloads in 600 years. Who knows? But yeah. And were you, were there book tours? Were you touring? For I, I had actually. Uh, gone out on book tour for the paperback uh, for um, Island of Sea Women. It was supposed to be a six-week tour. I went to five states in five days, and then the tour was canceled. It was um, March 10th was when I went out on tour. And then they sent me back home, which I was... Where were you when you got sent back home? I think Wichita. I think that may have been the last state. So, you know, the first, because of the paperback, the hardcover, you're going to New York and Chicago and San Francisco, but the paperback was a sort of these, you know, second tier, what they call second tier cities. And um, everybody was kind of watching what was happening. So I know uh, the first state was Minnesota. They didn't have a single case of COVID. By the end time that I ended the tour, I would, I, in which, you know, in Wichita, Wichita Kansas, um, they had two cases, but they were in another part of the state. But um, that, that day, New York declared a state of emergency. And my publisher has a um, policy that if the state has a, has a state of emergency, then um, their employees can't travel out of the state. And even though I don't live in New York, they, they considered me in that instance uh, an employee. My next stop was supposed to be New York. Oh. And so um, they sent me home. I was very grateful to come home, but I certainly didn't expect it to end up as it has, you know, a year and a half later. And Jim, you're, you're working on your computer mostly now. You don't do the pen and ink cartooning anymore, but I, I know the pandemic had some effect on you because I saw all the videos of you playing bagpipes on your dock. Right. Yeah. Well, that that has more an effect on my neighbors and my family. You know, <laughs> everybody says that bagpipes can make you cry. Well, I my family cries every time I practice, so I, I can vouch <laughs> for that. Um, bagpipes aside, I think you know uh, one of my friends commented that um, COVID was a gift to uh, introverts, and I don't quite agree with that totally, but it certainly was more punishing to extroverts. Um, and since I was an introvert, um, for me, a lot of my life just kind of carried on. Um, COVID did change it in, in three significant ways, though. Two children and, and my wife, who 
they all came home to work. Um, my two kids came home from school. My wife came home from the office. So my, my once very tranquil house turned into a complete circus, which is difficult to um, create, um, to, to write. So I, I need like a, you know, uh, a complete silent, um, silent chamber with, with the temperature exactly at 72 degrees and, and no, no out, outward, um, no external uh, stimuli to, to, to actually get a thought in my head. So to, to kind of adjust to that circus life and create and deal with, you know, all the trying to keep the kids on track with Zoom school, which was a complete bust and everything else um, really, really was a disruptor for me as a, as a, as a sort of stay at home uh, artist. And I know I, I, I love some, may, may I ask a question? Can I ask a question? Because uh, one of the things that I found for myself was that it was very hard to write in. Um, I mean, first of all, my husband was home 24 hours a day, which is, <laughs> we've never had that before. Um, but I, I found it quite hard to write especially in the, you know, let's say the first 10 months of the pandemic. I mean, I did, but that there did seem to be this real weight. And uh, so I was especially writing a cartoon where you're supposed to be kind of fun and light. And even though you do have things that you're writing about that are serious, it's not like there's a pandemic outside the window. And I, I, I found that to be quite hard, quite challenging. Um, to come to, you know, just anything light in the writing. Correct. Yeah. And, and that's, that's so true. And, you know, there was this kind of darkness that came over every, everything. Um, and we can all relate to that, everybody in the audience. And um, it was, it, and, you know, there were a lot of other things going on besides COVID that made um, the atmosphere somewhat tense Um and uh, so humor, humor became very difficult. And I, you know, I saw that manifest in television too. These, these, you know, professional comedians, you know, the Stephen Colbert's of the world out there trying to make people laugh. And they, it's difficult um, in these times. It was, you know, it bottomed out probably about this time last year, but it's, we're still far from recovered in, uh, in the, in the humor graph. Um, and I, I think, uh, it's going to take a while for us to kind of get our senses of humor back. But I think then the other side of it too is, you know, that humor on one side, but on the other side, you know, I, I do write, my books are usually pretty sad and there's always a lot of drama in them. And I sort of feel like people don't want that. We're all sort of living it in, in a way that we want uh, to have a kind of an escape and, and be lifted up and, feel inspired and um, I, I like to think my books are inspiring but they are you know people are going to a dark place often right well, it's part of living in it now because we're on to the even as we've not resolved this one we're on to the next global crisis which is you know the hottest stormiest wildfire burning you know record temperatures in Siberia and uh, Western Europe flooding. Um, I mean, in terms of the ocean, climate is literally changing the physical nature of the ocean, its circulation, its uh, temperature, its uh, chemistry. 
it's color. Um, so, so it's kind of like finding humor, finding a new way of telling stories in that sort of science fiction realm we grew up with. We're now living in that post-apocalyptic hellscape, but we still have to find the uh, balance, the warning with some wonder and some hope. Um, and I think that's, that's what you both do in your different ways. Um, sort of oh, just going back. Can I just say too, I, so um, it's my anniversary and we, my husband and I just went up to Half Moon Bay and we just, I don't know how many people watching are from California, but there's the ugly way back home down through central California, which is just ugly. But then we decided sort of spur of the moment, we'd drive down the coast and take an extra night. And it is so brown. It, I mean, I have never seen it look the way that it does. And yet there is such incredible beauty and to be driving through, you know, along through Big Sur, yes, this, this side has been burned, but out there, you know, is this incredible force, this incredible part of nature that has so much strength and it's enduring, right? It's forever. And yes, it's, you know, suffering um, as the rest of the planet is, but it will be here long after we're gone. And there was something I found, you know, very powerful about that as we were driving home. And it's, today. it's not just the everlasting sea, it's, it's our relationship to it. And we're yeah. always looking, uh, our work is to see if we can grow solutions faster than the problems. And when I, I spent a few years in DC and came home to California and immediately wrote my book, The Golden Shore, California's Love Affair with the Sea, because we're the solution at scale. I mean, 40 million people, the world's fifth largest economy. We've done very good by our coast and ocean. People love what they, you know, what they know, and they, they know the ocean, they have the access. You can't solve climate in a single state. You can't address some of these big issues. But, you know, if you have a state like California, um, it becomes a model for beginning to do the, the things that are needed. Um, I know I had great fun. Plus, it's always an excuse. So I, I went off with the Navy and, and the Coast Guard and the surfers and the, got into the ports. And I love the research. Um, even living alone, though, I, I, in the normal course, I'll, I'll find that I can actually do my writing between like 8 p.m. and 2 in the morning. I mean, I need to like have all the phones, you know, stop ringing and all and and what's your normal non-pandemic uh, schedule for your writing? And, and what's your goal each day, Lisa, Jim? Go ahead, Jim. Um, well, so I'm, I'm kind of more of a, a, a tradesman than, a, than an artist. And I don't, I'm trying, not trying to be coy or, or falsely humble here, but you know, my, my job is more of a daily thing. Um, I have a weekly deadline and it's, it appears daily and I grind it out sometimes. So um, I'm not, I'm not the sort of, I'm not a songwriter who can, you know, just kind of take time off and reflect and then sort of produce this work of art once every few weeks or a, a book writer who, who, you know, might take a couple of years and their, their schedule is very, you know, probably more to best described terms of weeks and months and, and mine is really a, a daily job I, it's not really a nine to five it's more I, I think I'm more productive in the morning as you say I mean when the when the phone's not ringing and everybody in the house is still asleep um, 
that's that's a quiet time for me. So six, seven, eight, nine in the morning is is nice. And then um, then after that, it's really fits and starts. And, and then you've said uh, when when uh, you're having problems with uh, a gag, your your sort of defaults, you can always have Sherman eat a eat a person. Right. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, so there's there's four kinds of gags in in my in my world. There's there's simple and funny. That's that's what we all strive for. And then there's there's two sort of equally valuable or unvaluable gags. And there's there's complicated and funny. And then there's simple and not so funny. Um, and those, you know, in, in my world, I will I will put them both out there because I have a deadline. <laughs> and, you know, when I put my books together, I kind of just, you know, call the herd a little bit and I get rid of those. But the, the absolute, you know, cardinal sin in my world is complicated and not funny. So I really, you know, when I'm when I'm stuck in a and I just can't think of anything else, I just go simple and visual. So, and Lisa, what's what's your schedule and expectation of yourself? So books, each book takes me about two years. The majority of time is spent on research. Um, the least amount of time is actually the writing and then the editing is somewhere in the middle. Uh, but I, you know, I do think of it a little bit, or just like Jim said, you know, you, there's only one way you're going to get a book done, and that's to put your butt in the chair every single day. And whether you're writing or editing or doing research, you're doing it every single day. Because um, you can't, you know, if you have a deadline of two years, you can't wait until the last week to write a 400 page book. So it's really, and, you know, sitting down every day. And just as Jim said, some days you're inspired and some days it's just really not there. But you still have to sit there and, and I write a thousand words a day when I'm writing, which is just four pages. And there are times I know it's bad. I mean, I know that it's going to be tossed out eventually, but I know that I also have to do it. And because you can't fix something unless you have something on the page. So, and the only way you're going to have something to fix again is just, you know, putting your butt in the chair and doing it every day. Um, and I, I do think a lot, you know, I, I sometimes, you know, on the, like the book that I'm working on right now, I'm having to work in a, a sort of subplot. Well, that has an effect. It has a ripple effect on everything. Um, so just to sort of sit and think and think and think and daydream and think, hmm, what if, oh, well, what if this? And, and that does take some time, but even that, I consider that to be work. You know, I consider that to be part of the process. And I'm sure for Jim that you're probably thinking all the time, you know, if you're one of your kids says something humorous, you're like, hmm, <laughs> I might be able to use something there. Something happens at dinner. Oh, I could use that. So I think there's a part of, um, for every type of artist that there's a part of your mind that's working all the time and thinking about how I can take something that I've heard or seen and incorporate it into the work. Okay. So all, all you viewers who want to write a great ocean book, um, be creative, but you got to do that thousand words a day. That's Lisa's instructions and uh, at least a thousand words a day. And, 
Um, I know a lot of questions are, are been posted. So uh, Natasha, maybe uh, we'll let people who are viewing uh, bring in some questions they have. Sure. Thank you. Um, this was a great, a great way to dive into ocean storytelling from cartoons to sea stories. Um, and you guys have, have triggered a few questions. Um, I'll start with Jim, just in terms of your process. Um, it sounds like you're doing most of it on the computer or do, do you actually draw and then scan? Can you talk about that for a minute? Sure. No, I, I draw it uh, on the computer now. I use a uh, digital tablet and with just Photoshop. So um, it's sort of what word processors did for writers. It, it allows us to do and redo and redo and redo and redo, which probably, you know, is um, it's, it's too much latitude. I think, I, I think in the old days when I actually put an ink line on a, on a paper and I had to live with it, my art was probably a little bit more interesting because there were, there were a lot more mistakes and, and, um, you know, just more interesting things visually, but, um, so yes, it's all digital now. Okay, great. I, I know and as an old journalist, I started up with, you know, manual electrics, electric typewriters. You write a 12 page article and your editor goes, that's great, but why don't you move that lead paragraph and sort of bring this one up and then you have to like do 12 pages again. So to me, the greatest technological breakthrough of the last century was not the internet. It was cut and paste on computers. <laughs> right. There you go. And Lisa, you've done a lot of traveling um, in writing your books. Do you have kind of any favorites or memorable experiences and where are you going next? Uh, there's so many, actually. I, um, I, I'll just say three very quickly. The first one was uh, when I was in southwestern Hunan province in Jinyang County, where uh, the secret writing system was invented by women, used by women and kept a secret by women for a thousand years. And so when I was there, I got to interview the oldest living Yushu writer at that time. I think she was 96. She, 93 or 96, she died three months later. And that truly was you know, one of the most memorable experiences of my life. Um, I think interviewing the Henyo, uh, there were certain women in particular, again, the ones who were in their early 90s who had just lived through so much history and so much hardship and yet had this incredible strength, incredible bravery, persistence, courage that I found, you know, very inspiring. Um, not just, you know, when I wrote the book, but all the way to today, especially actually in this last year and a half or so that when I would certain days, you know, when I've gotten kind of down and I just think I'm never getting out of this room. And then I think about these women, what they've been through. So hugely, hugely inspiring to me. And then the last one I would say was when I was working on Tigril uh, of Hummingbird Lane when I was up in the tea mountains of Hunan. And I have always been a tea drinker, but that book turned me into a total tea snob. So those, those were the places I think that uh, have meant the most to me. And where I'm going next, I don't know, because I just think we have to see what happens in the rest of the world with COVID. And, and it and sounds like, like, 
those Hanyo women uh, loud and, and humorous despite their incredible tragic lives. It's kind of like they're as salty as the sea. Exactly. And I did see a big difference actually between when the book first came out in hardcover and then a year later when it came out in, in paperback. That in the first year when I was doing events or talking to book clubs, people would say, oh, these women, you know, they're so physically, they have so much physical courage and bravery, what they do. I mean, and it's very, very dangerous work. Um, but then after COVID, people really changed how they interpreted the book. And it really was much more about the psychological courage and persistence and endurance. Um, you know, we're so lucky in this country. We, you know, none of us living have, have experienced, for example, a war on our soil. So we don't know what that's like to have something happening right outside your window or right outside your front door. And, um, you know, I think obviously this last year and a half has been very challenging for people who, you know, people who've lost family members, friends, uh, lost jobs. I mean, it's just been, for lack of a better word, pretty brutal. And so, um, people, I mean, I'm very gratified, though, to see how leaders have taken that courage um, that the Henyo have for what they've, you know, brought by what they've experienced and their emotional strength. And that, have, um, you, have you go got... Ahead. Have you gotten feedback from people on Jeju on the island uh, on your book? I have. However, you know, the Henyo themselves, are most of them are illiterate. And so they, there is a Korean edition, but I don't think they've been able to read it. Um, but I have heard, you know, certainly the people who helped me, some of the academic people and scientists there, um, you know, have been very kind. And, and the book has done very well in South Korea. Great. Um, another question for Jim. Um, do you take suggestions from marine scientists for sure. ocean stories? Yeah. No, I do all the time. I've got, I know a lot of them out there. Uh, for example, just uh, about four weeks ago, um, a good friend of mine is, 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 does public outreach for uh, Woods Hole. So um, they wanted to do a whole cartoon series on the so-called Twilight Zone, which is that kind of middle area, not, not the deep, deep ocean and not the, the sunny, you know, top part of the ocean, but that sort of middle area that's kind of hard to research and hard to stay in. And uh, uh, so I did a two week series on that featuring some of the animals. And um, so we're, um, and we're kind of integrating them into the website and so forth. So, and I do that all the time. Um, I take suggestions from the scientists, but also from uh, folks working in conservation as well. So, um, yeah, I love doing that. I mean, and it's also, Jim does a real trick. I mean, he's covered not just shark finning and biodiversity, marine protected areas, ocean acidification, coral bleaching. I mean, you know, to get a, and they're like five, seven day series. So to get like consistent humor over the state of coral is, is, particularly challenging. I mean, if you just went for the yucks and didn't talk about the issues, you'd probably have an easier, uh, yeah. Go up. And no, definitely. I mean, when I, whenever I get an, a, a, what I call an assignment or, you know, like the, any project like that, uh, it takes twice as long to do the work. Um, but it's, it's a lot more gratifying too. Um, sometimes I sort of 
I just go general. I, I'll do a two week series on something specific like the Twilight Zone, and then I'll go back to a general interest storyline just to sort of clear things out. Um, but yeah, it's a lot harder to write um, when you're trying to convey information and a gag and do it and tell a story and and you have about 40 words to, to move that storyline along. Definitely right. challenging. You helped in 2018. We did Global March for the Ocean and you had a series and it's like, we're going to march. And it's like, we're fish. We're going to like die if we go in the air. Right. Yeah. Flop around and die. Right. Yeah. Um, Sometimes. Yeah. I, I go dark every now and then, but there you go. (laughs) Well, I think, um, you know, just in terms of the messaging around the cartoons and telling these stories about the cultures that live and, and depend on the ocean. um, One one of uh, our audience uh, said, that we're beyond awareness. What what else do we need to do to write about, to mobilize people to, into actual action on the climate crisis and what's happening to our oceans? I know, um, you know, Jim, you've done some work addressing some of those issues, but um, I asked this question to both Lisa as a, as a writer and Jim as uh, creating the imagery and the messaging around it. How do we, how do we mobilize um, the public to care about our oceans. You want to try that first, Lisa? Actually, I want to, I, I actually was thinking about something you said earlier that your um, cartoons aren't necessarily political, but, or that, you know, people will read them and be brought into a subject, even though maybe politically or ideologically, they, let's say, don't believe in global warming or global climate change. That, but through your work, you can actually reach those people through humor. And I, I think that that's something that artists can do is that you're reaching people um, you know, and telling, talk, talking about stuff that maybe on the surf, you know, on, at first I think I'm not interested in that or I don't believe in that. But through story and through art, you can bring them to it and you can make them maybe, you know, open the door a little bit, open the window a little bit and hope that they'll come through a little, you know, and, and at least peek through. And I think that that's what art can do. And, yep. and it's, it, you can't mistake media for movement. I mean, that media can open up, you know, history or, or you know, identify, you know, serious problems through humor. But um, at a certain point, people mobilize. And, you know, what what you can do is you can talk about empowered women and, and lives that, you know, you can, you can change the narrative from sort of land-based, you know, men going off to kill other men and the leaders of, you know, of the nations or those who, you know, managed to, you know, lead armies. And that's, that's not a model for today. Um, so I think, you know, the models we're looking at, part of it is what we get through culture. And then part of it is our individual choices to, uh, to make choices, you know, whether it's as consumers or citizens. I, you know, I, I, I'll sort of, I, I totally agree with what you both said. What Lisa said earlier is so similar to what I was about to say that um, I'm scrambling to say something different now. Um, I think her point that, um, you know, as artists, we can, we can put that message subtle or not so subtle in different places and different audiences and different you know, in different minds and change different minds is, is important. Um, I, my comic strip, the, the funny pages really are 
are read at the kitchen table, um, you know, in, in houses all over, all over the country. And they're not, they don't really cut across a particular age or political or, or any other race or any other kind of demographic. They're really kind of universally read. Um, and that's, I think that's the power of my comic. My, what I do is that, um, you know, I just, I can put that message and it's short. So a lot of people who may not necessarily agree with my politics will, will read that cartoon anyway. Um, it's, uh, it, it just brings, for me, I try to bring that message to a, a, a slightly different audience segment um, than the audience that might watch nature documentaries or, or you know, go to a, read the New York Times or whatever. So I think and as also, artists. But also, you know, there are lots and lots of people in this country who've never even seen the sea, you know, never seen it. And so I'm sure, you know, I, I was doing research actually at, in South Dakota a couple of years ago. And I mean, I don't know how many of them have seen the ocean or not, but they were seeing the effects of global climate change around them. You know, I was there in summer, they had a saying about corn, knee high by the 4th of July. Well, it was this high, you know, it just wasn't growing. And so they, they were seeing what was happening, but they could relate it to, to their fields, to their land, to their storms. Um, and, and so I think some of this, it, it's trying to show that, I mean, in some regards, that it's whether it's on land or on the sea, things are happening. And you may not actually have an experience of having seen the sea or been in the sea, but that you can take what's happening out there uh, and relate it to your, wherever you want where you live and, and what and, you're experiencing yourself. And the sea is water. It, it, you know, evaporates, it becomes all the water in our lives, which is life itself. And, and I think that, you know, I know the incredible, crisis and danger we're in but whenever i go diving or body surfing i come out of the ocean i'm optimistic you lisa just drove down the pacific highway and looking out at the pacific that covers one third of the planet i know you're an inveterate sailor and now you uh um, you're boating a lot jim and i hope to join you shortly um i, I think the the ocean's a unifying spirit and uh because it's water and because it's life and I think that that, that spirit's infused. Uh, I'm certainly going to read more of your books, Lisa, but I, I just thought it was an incredible um, historical tale to be told of, of a unique place and a, and a unique group of women who, who represent something important in history and something we can't afford to lose. And, and Jim, I just, you know, look to you as, as an opportunity to... Uh, both laugh and learn, which is rare that you can do that in one place. And I just appreciate both of you for joining us on uh, this uh, with Writers for the Sea and uh, and Natasha for uh, all your work. And uh, and we're gonna it's gonna get posted. And anybody who missed this, uh, who's on the call, tell your friends to check it out. Um, some amazing artists here today, Jim and Lisa. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks, David. Thank nice you. sharing this with you, Lisa. Same with you too. Thank you. Thank you guys. And now a word from our sponsor.
That's the sound of a North American right whale. With fewer than 400 left along the Atlantic coast, the right whale will soon be extinct if we don't act now. 80% of their deaths are caused by entanglement with fishing gear, including ropes from lobster and crab pots. That's why we need to begin deploying ropeless fishing gear technology that is both practical and affordable. With your support, we can protect the livelihoods of fishers and the lives of endangered right whales. The Sierra Club Marine Team, because 71% of the environment is salty. To learn more, go to Sierra Club Marine Team on Facebook. Rising Tide is a production of Blue Frontier with host David Helberg and support from Natasha Benjamin, Ellie Curlow, and myself, Vicki Nichols-Goldstein. Rising Tide's editing services and additional technical support are provided by studio Kate May of San Diego, California. The theme song is written and performed by Ethan Kenbar. You can find Rising Tide, the ocean podcast, at www.bluefront.org or download it anytime from Apple, Google, or Spotify. Off in the salty ocean, off where the waves are free, the sparkling water rises, then crashes to the sea. Out amongst the breakers, you'll have no need to fear. It's true, it's the blue frontier. Sparky, come here, buddy. Sparky, there you are. Good boy, Sparky.